All right, my name is Lee Sipe. I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Church, and this is Jacob, who is our outreach minister. Oh, what do you call yourself? Uh, uh, officially, Connections and Outreach Minister. Con connections yes. and Outreach Minister. I got close. And we are going to be talking about the sermon from Sunday called The Weight of Sin. Now, Chris usually is here, Chris Brown, our associate pastor, but Chris preaches once a month. And this was his week to preach, and so since he preached the sermon, we are going to um, to be doing the podcast today to talk about and add to and to dig deeper into the message and the passage in particular, the weight of sin. And so, uh, Jacob, would you like to open up and share with us where we're going today with this sermon. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing that we'll, uh, we probably ought to do, let's, let's just read the passage. Okay. Uh, let's just dive right in. So the passage is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 10. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand uh, on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Okay, all right. By the way, uh, we have different translations. I noticed this Sunday I used the NIV. It's the old version of NIV from the early 1980s, late 70s, and they, they have amended it a number of times over the years. And uh, Jacob is reading the same translation that Chris used, which is the ESV, both fine translations. So I won't get into the, that debate, but uh, the ESV says Amalek. And if you read the passage, it refers to Amalek, an individual. But um, the NIV uses the term Amalekites, that is the followers of Amalek. And, and so probably the Hebrew, and I didn't look it up, is uh, the word Amalek, but Obviously, they're not fighting one guy. They're, they're fighting the Amalekites, and so the NIV just went ahead and put Amalekites and other translations as well. Either translation is fine as long as you understand uh, they weren't fighting against one guy. It was an entire army of people. And so, it's like uh, a gladiator fight. Like, oh, yeah, here comes Amalek. Yeah, oh, two, here comes two, uh, Jacob slash Israel, and they're going to fight against each other. It'd right. Be something, wouldn't it? And two champions. And by the way, you know, that has been popularized by the movie Troy and so many others where one champion comes and fights against uh, another champion. Two champions, two people fight against one another to represent the, the army. If you don't know where that came from, it didn't come from Hollywood. It came from the story of David and Goliath. Remember, the Philistines uh, selected Goliath because they had this nine-foot-tall guy. So, you know, <laughs> you might as well use him. And so he went out and taunted the Israelites who didn't have a nine-foot-tall guy. In fact, the Israelites, the Jews, historically are fairly short people. No offense, Jews, but they're, they're not particularly tall. And so... He really certainly would tower over the Jews. And so they had that our champion against your champion strategy, which backfired on them. Of course, David went out, who was a fraction of the size, young man, barely more than a boy, fraction of the size of Goliath. But his God was bigger, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what made all the difference. As you know, David had victory that day. 
And so we get that from there. So anyway, it, it, it is not just one person here. It is a group of people or, a, or a, an entire army fighting against the, the Israelites. Okay, all right. Uh, where were you, Jacob? Yeah, <clears throat> so, uh, so for, the, for the passage itself here, um, there's, a, there's an awful lot that's going on uh, here in Exodus chapter 17. So, um, and I know that uh, that you're you're also very excited to talk about uh, this particular passage <laughs> and uh, some of the things that it, it means. And so, uh, we were actually talking about this before, and you mentioned that uh, there's there's no other uh, place, at least we could think of, in the Old Testament where the Israelites are fighting, where God is is somehow demonstrating a uh, like a physical sign. Of of what the, what's happening in the battle, right? Yeah. When Moses has his arms up, the Israelites are winning. When his arms are beginning to lower, the Amalekites are are starting to to win. Um, so, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, on so that? they're they're fighting against the Amalekites, and Moses is of course their leader. And with them were Aaron and a guy named Hur. They went up to the top of the hill where they could see the battle taking place in the valley. And as they're there, Moses has his staff with him, the, the staff of Moses, which is the staff that he used at the crossing of the Red Sea and, and for the plagues in Egypt. And it it's, represents God's power through Moses to, uh, to do miracles. So Moses is holding up his hands. I don't know, because I've read the story a number of times, whether he's technically holding up the staff or not. The staff is mentioned here. It says, tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Um, from that time on, it says when he put his hands up, uh, they had victory. They were winning the battle when his hands were down. He was not winning the battle. I don't know how heavy the staff would be, but for Moses, and if you remember Moses, when he experienced his calling, before going back to Egypt, before any of the plagues and before the exodus, at that moment, calling there at the burning bush that didn't burn up, he was 80 years old. And so he's over 80 at this point. He's in his 80s. He's an elderly man, as we would say. <clears throat> and so I don't know how he, long he could hold up the staff, but not long. In fact, you know, at my age, 59, I'm doing good to hold up my hands for very long with no staff. And yeah. so this would have been a daunting task for Moses. I picture the staff in his hand. Uh, in my, my mind, the staff is in his hand as he's holding it up before the Amalekites and the battle. But he noticed pretty quickly as he tired and put his hand down, the battle immediately changed. The Israelites were winning. And then as when he put his hands down, the Israelites started losing. And this is what I shared with the staff because this passage excites me. Chris said in his sermon at the beginning that this is one of his uh, favorite stories or favorite passages, and he's not alone. It is unique in all of history. And in all of the Bible, there's no other battle quite like this. There were many battles, but this one really is different. Generally, the rule applied that if the Israelites were doing what they're supposed to do and, they, and God was pleased with them, God simply gave them victory in the battle. If they were sinning or they didn't consult God and just ran out there and did their own thing, then they lost. And so if you're doing right, you're going to win. If you're doing wrong, you're going to lose. That principle applied on the battlefield. 
virtually every time, but this is one of those rare instances that whether they were winning or losing wasn't depending upon whether he was pleased with them or not. It was dependent upon Moses' hands being in the air or not in the air. Mm -hmm. In other words, it may very well be that the Israelites believed that God could deliver them, had been behaving in their life, had been faithful to God, and God is pleased with them, and yet they're still losing on the battlefield. And by the way, when it says they're losing on the battlefield, that means they're dying. <laughs> you know, that's, that's how you know you're losing on the battlefield when your men start getting killed. And so lives were at stake. And Moses could see this. He could see his own men dying the moment he put his hands down. He also could see that the moment he put his hands up, his people stopped dying and the enemy started dying, the Amalekites. And so there's a lot at stake here. And so that's what makes it unusual. And I pose the question, why? What, why? Why would God do this? What, if he's pleased with his people, why would he let his people start dying the, Moses, uh, the moment Moses put his hands down. And what's the reason, Jacob? <clears throat> well, um, if we look immediately before that, uh, in Exodus 17, we see that the Israelites are grumbling uh, about a lack of water. They're, okay. they're, they're grumbling. Uh, this is kind of the longer answer. So There's the, a lot of grumbling. Oh, Always lots grumbling, of grumbling. Yeah. And uh, Moses goes to God and he says, hey, these people are getting ready to stone me. And, and they're saying, hey, Moses, why did you lead us out of Egypt just to die out here in the wilderness? Uh, here we get that and uh, again, right? They're complaining again. And so God has Moses go through the assembly of the people uh, and really physically demonstrate that, hey, uh, Moses is God's chosen leader of Israel, and it's through Moses that, that God's going to work to bring them water. Immediately after that is when we get this passage, yeah, yeah. where it's That's... very, very clear, right, that, hey, Moses is the guy that God has chosen, and here we have this physical, this physical sign of that. And, and there's no question, the, the Israelites, as they're fighting the battle, along with the Malachites, they can look at the top of the hill and see Moses up there. Okay. It's not like he's so far away or he's up in a cloud bank where they can't see him. They can see Moses. If he's got his hands in the air and the staff in his hand, that's a strong visual cue uh, of something. That is, they, they can see that. And when his hands are down, they can see that as well. And it is important for the Israelites to understand and know that Moses is the man that God has called to lead them. And they need to obey him. They need to respect him. So God could have done it any way he wanted. I, I think that had God allowed them to have victory without Moses up on the hill, without the staff being raised or hands being raised, or without help from, uh, from Aaron and her, that the Israelites may have, I say may have, you can almost bank on it, yep. that the Israelites would have thought, you know, we're pretty good soldiers. You have to understand, they're not soldiers. They're, they're, they're freed slaves. They've never bought, fought a battle in their life. They're probably incredibly ill-equipped because they're not soldiers. They, they, they don't know what they're doing. But had they won that battle without Moses up there holding up his hand, signifying the strength and the power of God, they would have had a victory party that night giving praise not to God, but themselves as being awesome soldiers and tough men, which they were neither, of course. Yeah. 
And so I, it was really important that they look up on the hill and they know when the staff is raised or when Moses' hands are raised, they're wedding. Hmm. They don't have anything to do with his hands being raised. And when he lowers his hand, they're losing. And they realize the victory or the loss in the battle is completely dependent upon Moses raising his hands. And obviously, to make a connection between raising and lowering his hands and winning and losing the battle, we see something supernatural here taking place. It doesn't take a theologian among the Israelites to realize they don't have anything to do with winning or losing. It has to do with the hands being raised. And obviously, Moses is not doing winning the battle. It's, it's God. God is directly involved in this battle. And they're not theologians, and so it has to have it be something very simple and obvious and visual to them, and God provides that. So that when they do win the battle, and they do, they can do nothing but thank God for the battle because they know the battle is God's. Yep, and so uh, one of the things that Moses really uh, does uh, in, in that entire chapter is he, uh, he gives over, uh, he really gives it up to God. The entire situation with uh, with the Israelites grumbling, and then this battle with with the Amalekites, right? Mm-hmm. Like Moses even realizes that, hey, uh, yeah, there's there's nothing about me that's special other than God is working through me. And that's correct. Me. That's correct. Uh, which brings us to uh, uh, to the first point, um, and and really the fundamental question of Chris's sermon was, how do we give our our sins, our burdens, and our battles over to the Lord? How do we do that? Yeah, so Chris used the the moment or the time uh, of, of Moses raising his hands, and and both Moses realized very quickly, and God knew beforehand. He's aware that Moses is an older guy, and it, it doesn't matter if he's twenty five; he's not going to be able to hold his hands up that long. Nobody can do that, and and that's important for God, for Moses to know he can't do it on his own either. And so God foreordained these two guys, uh, um, her and um, Aaron, to go up there with him. And so when he gets tired, they go and lift his hands. They actually found a rock for him to sit on. They put a rock under him to sit on. So I, I, I find that interesting as well. As you know, rocks are heavy. And so if they find a rock large enough for 80-something-year-old Moses to go sit down on, that's a pretty good-sized rock. There was no, there's never a shortage of rocks in Israel, by the way. I, I guarantee there were rocks nearby. But they, they found a rock and put it in place for him to sit on. I don't know if it was 20 guys or two guys or however many got the, got the rock there so he could sit on the rock. So Moses was able to sit down, and they held his hands up. Uh, so that's the part of the story that Chris used to talk about lifting one another up, carrying the burdens of one another. And specifically, and I had forgotten this in the New Testament, there are references to carrying one another's burden in the context of sin, that we lift each other up. You commit sins and I commit sins. Jacob commits sins, and certainly Chris sins all the time. So, uh, he, he he uses that as a catalyst, that subject of sin, to talk about how we can bear one another, we can lift one another up in the midst of that that difficulty in our life. Sin always brings difficulty in our life, and he's not talking about we were we're guilty for the sins of other people, 
uh, or that we are to go in and start sinning with them. On the contrary, it's understanding we are all flawed people, and when we suffer in life, in suffering that is self-inflicted because of our own sin, that instead of condemning each other, and by the way, that's what the world does. If you turn on your TV, if you look at the news, it is. If you look at Hollywood, it, every every everybody everybody makes a mistake, and I would not want to be an actor in Hollywood because sooner or later you're going to make a mistake. You're going to say just the wrong thing that doesn't support the right group, and they will skewer you. The rest of Hollywood will pounce all over you. I've seen this multiple times just this week in the news. Who's going to get it next? That's the question in Hollywood. Who's going to be lambasted? Who's going to say or do just the wrong thing? So it's going to be they're they're going to be canceled at that point. Now there are Hollywood actors that need to be canceled. Uh, frankly, they've done horrible things. They've said terrible things. They've done illegal things, and they need to stand accountable for that. That's not what I even I'm talking about here. I'm talking about Hollywood actors making mistakes, just like you make mistakes and I make mistakes. And this world is quick to cancel them, to lambast them, to slander them, to to dismiss them. And it will never work in, as an actor in Hollywood again. And there is no forgiveness, by the way, either in Hollywood. They don't understand. They don't understand the concepts of grace or mercy. And they certainly don't understand the biblical ideal of bearing one another's burdens in light of that sin. And so uh, in the kingdom, however, it's to be different. And so he gets into that uh, with some beautiful passages. Mm-hmm. You want to share some of those with us, Jacob? Yes. Um, so Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, very good. And you know, that that passage, when it says, bear one another's burdens, or in verse 2 of Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Not the law of Moses, interestingly. He mentions specifically the law of Christ, but this law of Christ can be illustrated through Moses himself uh, so many years earlier. So he says, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. Again, this is exactly the opposite of what I told you Hollywood and the rest of the world does. The the rest of the world doesn't even get this. (laughs) They don't get it. It will fly right over their head. They're going, they'll be saying, what? Bear no, you bury them. You don't bear their burdens. You bury them because of their burdens. It's their fault. They messed up. Condemn them. Cancel them. Slander them. That's what the world does, and that's what the world teaches you to do. I remember when I was in in uh, junior high as a boy, and we we were first learning those social rules. I don't think anybody is is as cruel as a junior high boy. I don't know, <laughs> man. Maybe a junior high girl. That's exactly I don't what I was going to say. <laughs> they are mean. They are mean to each other. And uh, so somebody somebody says something or does something wrong, and everybody's all over them. Or not in junior high anymore. 
but the the secular world as they grow up, they just get meaner. They're, they don't grow through that. But in Christ, our nature is different. We, we're to understand and remi- remember that we're all sinners. We all mess up. We all fall short. And for us to jump all over somebody else for their sins, we seem to very quickly forget our own. But yeah. Paul says, no, no, that's not what... It says, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. doesn't mean you uh, agree with their sin. It doesn't mean that you... you brush over their sin like it didn't happen or that it's not important. It doesn't mean that you uh, celebrate their sin. On the contrary, um, there were times where they were doing that and Paul had to get on to them. That's the the Corinthian church. And uh, in fact, you'll see that uh, tonight in my Bible study or my Wednesday night Bible study. But Paul had to deal with that very thing. Take sin seriously. The Bible takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. Christ died for our sin. That's how serious God mm-hmm. takes it. Uh, on the other hand, God, God is a God of mercy. That's also why Christ died, to demonstrate God's mercy and his grace on us. And we are to be like Christ. We are to exercise mercy where the world is without mercy. So the world only knows justice, and their brand of justice, by the way, isn't real justice. Yeah. It's, it's beyond justice. But the world are, are, uh, seeks justice. God says, no, you're to ex- exercise mercy. So anyway, I like that. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Be sure to look that up. That's a good uh, passage to memorize, but especially verse 2 where he says, bear one another's burdens. And so this is what the guys did literally with Moses. Uh, Aaron and her, they held his arms up. They bore his burden. Now, it wasn't Moses' sin uh, that they're bearing, but the analogy is very visual that they're holding him up. He could not hold himself up. So um, so that's that's the heart of what he was trying to get at. Okay, uh, next passage. Yeah, so uh, we've we've covered and hit uh, let let the spirit empower you point one, and then let the church support you point yes, two. Uh-huh. And by the way, you're supposed to do that as a as a church mm-hmm. uh, when it talks about restoring your brother gently. That's not just an individual thing; it's a collective thing. And uh, now restoration doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't. It's not that you you say something or or they do something that's egregious and you just say, oh, uh, you know, you forget it, and then tomorrow it's like it never happened. There is a process of restoration, mm-hmm. and that process depends upon the sin. As pastor, I've had to remove people in the past from positions of authority in the church because of sin. Uh, I've had church members over the years. I've pastored for 30 years, four different churches. I've had church members get arrested. I've had church members that uh, were openly caught in sin. And uh, I've had church members that were willing to to go through church discipline. And except I've had one person, they, they clearly were caught in a sin. And uh, it had to do with a physical altercation, uh, by the way. 
and uh, God restored them, and the church restored them. I removed them from ministry for a certain amount of time, actually for a year, and then we went through another process for the next year of where there was partial restoration into to leadership in the ministry. And then after that, we restored them to where they were. Uh, again, God doesn't expect us to just cancel people forever over a single sin. Uh, if that were the case, you wouldn't have any pastors or anybody in ministry. You wouldn't have any deacons and you wouldn't have any volunteers in a church because we all mess up. And the, the goal of God is restoration. That's, again, why Christ died for us so that we can be restored into a right place. And that's how the church should function. Now, most people, when I, when I confront them, if their sin is very public or obviously if they end up in, in jail as a result of uh, something that they did, they don't want any of that. They, 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 don't, they feel that it's condemnation. They don't want any kind of restore them gently. They want to be restored immediately or pretend that it didn't happen at all, and that's not what Paul did either. He took sin very seriously, but the goal was restoration. And this particular individual that we were able to restore, they submitted to that decision to remove them from ministry for a period of time. They submitted to the decision uh, that after a year, they had to go through a provisional time. And they submitted to that because they were willing to submit to that humbly. We were able to restore them in time restore them gently, not immediately, but gently. And I really commend this individual for having done that. They they submitted to that. They didn't get mad and leave the church and say, well, I'll just go somewhere else. I had a young man once that stood up in a worship service, and this is decades ago. I, I, I won't give you his name, although I've not seen him in many decades. A young man, barely a teenager, barely more than a teenager, and he got up one night in Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting and very proudly announced that he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant and that he wanted prayer for his girlfriend. Uh, and I, I think he, I mean, he was proud. He was just happy as could be. Uh, I think he, it was the first girl he'd ever dated and he was very dysfunctional. And I think he was so proud of the fact that he was able to have a relationship with a girl that resulted in a pregnancy was the most uh, impressive thing he'd ever done. It didn't even occur to him that you're not supposed to be sleeping with your girlfriend. You're supposed to marry her. And so he got up and bragged about it in the service. And so, and, and my rule of thumb as a pastor is I'm not I'm not the morality police. I don't knock on doors and call you up and get into all your business. I'm not a priest. You don't have to confess to me you ever sinned. But if you Stand up in a in a worship service and announce that you you proudly you know became uh, you're going to be a father uh, to a girl that you're not married to. Then I have to deal with that. So I went to him and I said, "Look, uh, brother, you you seem to have not noticed that the Bible says you're not supposed to to be sleeping with someone or living with someone outside of marriage." And that's still a rule, by the way. If if two people are living together and they're not married, we will not allow them to join the church. They're always welcome in our worship service. We don't condemn. But uh, but if you want to, to be a member of the church, there are boundaries. There are expectations. And if the Bible says, no, you, you, you should not be doing this behavior and you're openly doing that behavior, then you can't, you can't join the church. You can't be a member and you can't lead in our ministries. 
but you can't attend the services. And so I, but this this person was already a member of the church. And so I said, you know, now I have to deal with this because you're the one that announced it to everybody. We didn't know. And uh, because you announced it, obviously I, I can't let this go. And so I need you to do one of two things. I, or one of three things. I said, you need to stop seeing this girl um, or you need to move her out of where you're living. They were living together. He, he announced that. And, and so you need to live in separate places if you want to continue the relationship. I think that's commendable because she's expecting your, your child and you need to take responsibility for that. But that doesn't mean she needs to be living with you in order for you to take responsibility. Or three, you need to marry her. If you're not willing to, to do one of those three things, you need to move on. You, you can't be a member of this church and openly living like this. You need to take responsibility. And he was shocked and stunned, and that was the last time I saw him. Uh, he left. And and so, uh, again, that's a situation where we would be happy to uh, help bear his burden uh, of the of the mistake that he made, uh, choosing, choosing to live with a girl outside of marriage, we would be there to celebrate. We would have a, and we've done this. We will have a baby shower for the baby because the baby doesn't. It's not the baby's fault. How how they were conceived and what context they were conceived. And so we would have a baby shower for the baby. We would embrace them. And uh, I've gone to couples and said, "Look, I'll marry you for free. You can use the auditorium or the sanctuary for free. Zero cost wedding." Uh, if they needed, we would even gather together and raise money or give money for their marriage license, for a car seat for the baby, whatever we need to do to help them in that journey uh, if they're willing to take that journey. Because that child needs two parents. It, it needs a fair shake in this life. And just condemning them isn't going to do anybody any good. But I, we have to see some repentance on their part. And again, tonight we'll see Paul's challenge with the Corinthian church that there was there was sexual immorality in the church and they were just hooping it up. Everybody was patting each other on the back over it and it was it was a bad scene and Paul made it very clear, now nah, you, you can't do that. There has to be boundaries. And so uh, n- not to condemn, not to judge, but still boundaries nonetheless. And so the, the the Bible tells us how do we live our life morally. It's not suggestions. God's not implying anything. He's telling you straight up, this is how you need, in the kingdom, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you're going to die to self and give yourself to Christ, you need to be willing to, to, to follow these expectations that God has on us. God's a moral God, and he calls his people to be moral people, to make an effort. And we fail. I fail. Everyone fails. We make mistakes and we sin. But God calls us to repent of those sins, and we're we're striving toward that goal of perfection to be like Christ. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're, you know, you get caught up in this American ideal that it doesn't make any difference what you do, or it's none of God's business, it's nobody's business, that you can glean the good from Christianity, you want to go to heaven, but you're not going to submit to any of that stuff. Well, I've got news for you. Romans 10.9 tells us that you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Those are the two steps to be saved. By the way, you have to confess and you have to believe. The believe is you believe that Jesus died for your sins in your place on the cross 
And it says you have to believe in the resurrection. Three days later, the Bible teaches that he was resurrected. And there were hundreds of people who saw him after he was resurrected. You have to believe in that. Believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, then you can't be a Christian, period. And then the first step is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Lord means, <laughs> Lord means, you know, you're you're here and Christ is up here. He He's your Lord. That is, he's the big boss of your life. And he tells you to forgive others, you're going to forgive them. If he tells you to love others, you're going to love them. If he tells you not to be living with somebody outside of marriage, you're going to say, okay, I, you know, I'm a believer in Christ. I know that's what the world does and everybody says that's okay. But God says, no, we need to get married first. And so you get married first. That's what you do as a believer in Christ. You don't get to just do anything you want uh, because if Christ is your Lord, you're going to do your best to do what he asks you to do. So live a life of kindness, gentleness, live a life of peace, live a life of obedience. And if you're not willing to obey Christ, he is not your Lord. And so that's what I would say to the young man who stormed out of my office that day. I find him, I find myself wondering, has he given his life to the Lordship of Christ? Um, so anyway, I don't want to sound condemning. I'm, I'm hoping that he ended up being a great father. It's so long ago, that child is now a grown, is now grown in their 20s. And so that's mid-20s, that's a long time. Oh, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, uh, I wish him the best, and I hope and pray that he ended up uh, doing what was right. Had he ever called or come back, and, and I would love to have seen him, and I would love to have been a part of that restoration, but he did not want to be a part of that. Restoration is not an easy thing. Yeah. All right, I, I, I'm off the track. Uh, <laughs> if you would go ahead, uh, Jacob, and wrap yes. it up for us with the last point. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, as followers uh, of Christ, uh, under the Lordship of Christ, uh, the church is a, a great uh, tool. It's a great, uh, we have this great benefit of the church to help us not only to uh, be killing the sin that's in our lives, but also to be pursuing uh, righteousness and with Christ as our model. And so as we go about doing that, uh, we, uh, we do have victories. Uh, it's this wonderful thing that, uh, hey, uh, even though it is a struggle against sin and, and more and more to be like Christ, yeah. and you know, we have setbacks, uh, as you've said. We, I mean, we, all of us sin uh, in, in many different ways. Uh, but God does grant us victory uh, over over the the span of our lives, and generally speaking, right the um, the overall course of our lives should be one that is marked by progressive holiness. And so uh, that's uh, really brings us to the third point, which is let God's victory be known in your life, which uh, kind of flows into really the rest of the the passage in Exodus seventeen. So starting in verse twelve, uh, but Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steadily, sorry, steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. So here we see that Moses, 
uh, he builds this altar, right? And, and he's even explicitly uh, called to remember, uh, remember what it is that happened there, that the Lord is, is the one who gave them this victory. And so uh, Chris mentioned in his sermon that for us, whenever the Lord grants us uh, victories uh, over the battles in our lives, uh, we should take time. We should build an altar. We should remember those things. All right. That's exactly right. His focus was on God, and very clearly, Moses is not in the, the, the victory statement at all. He doesn't put himself in there. He doesn't say, me and God did this. Uh, the Lord is my banner. It's all a focus on God. Now, let me tell you what I would have done, because I am a man. <laughs> At the end of that battle, holding my, my hands for six hours or eight hours, however long it took, I would have said, I would have been tempted to say, let me put it that way to the guys, I held my hand up for hours for you. <laughs> if it weren't for me holding up my hands, you'd all be dead by now. So you better be thankful that I held up my hands and me, 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 me. Right. You know, every man's favorite song, me, 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 me. Well, and, and, so, um, it, it, and, and that would have been the temptation. Oh, yeah, and Aaron and her would have been standing there with their arms crossed like, what did we yeah. do? Oh, I, I, yes, and so <laughs> then I would have given partial credit. Well, Aaron and her helped a little too. <laughs> right, right. Yes, um, my sidekicks. But he doesn't do any of that. He never mentions himself in that, as long, even though as long as he held up his hand for all of those hours and how tiring it would have been and difficult it would have been for a man in his 80s to do that, he doesn't mention any of that anguish or, or physical challenge or the pain that he may have endured, nor does he mention uh, um, Aaron and her and, and their, their burden that they had to, to bear they gave themselves no credit. It was God who got the credit. God is my banner. That means God is the one who gave us the victory. Period. Yeah. So uh, uh, you know you have to notice that, and that's that's his final point. Really, is that we are to to give God credit for the victories in our life, and it is tempting, not so much to take credit for our victories, although that's a temptation as well. But when God gives us victory, here's the temptation. We just kind of slide into the next day, week, month, and year, and we overlook it. We don't celebrate it. We don't really call it for what it is. Mm -hmm. We just smile and say, oh, thank you, Lord, and then we move on. Don't do that. Don't do that. It should be a celebration. This Sunday is my 25th anniversary here at First Baptist Church, and that's one of the things that I've said to the staff, and that will be the very theme of the message this Sunday is the victory is the Lord's. And so it is the grace of God that I've been able to be here for 25 years is not any great thing that I've said or done for the last 25 years. It is the mercy of God and the victory is his. And so we're, I'm excited and honored that the church has put up with me and God's put up with me for the last 25 years. And it is really his victory. And I look forward to the years to come to see God win more victories here in, in this church. And for every life that is saved, for every baptism that we have, for every mission trip that we go to, the banner is the Lord's. And so that's that's what I want to focus on. All right, Jacob? Yeah, so uh, I have a question for you. So um, one of the things uh, you know that we definitely want to be doing is uh, remembering, celebrating, giving thanksgiving for those victories. What are some uh, What are some practical ways? So, like, I don't know about you. I'm not going out. And, oh, hey, the Lord has granted me this awesome victory. Let me go and build an altar with these rocks and stack yeah, them up uh -huh, so I can, right. you know, visibly remember that. 
So what are some, uh, what is a way maybe that you found or, or uh, something to help us remember in our own uh, personal, individual uh, walks even? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some ways that we can go about remembering the things that, that God has done in our lives? That is a good point. Um, I'll tell you what we do in our marriage because I've been married 25 years as well. We were on our honeymoon when the pulpit committee called us for an interview. And and so I just celebrated my 25th anniversary. But there's the, the 10th anniversary and the 15th, the 20th, the 25th. And those of you who have been married long enough for 50 years, that's a big one as well. Really, the 25th and the 50th are, are big years. And so you might ask the question, and you'll need to ask this question because you're married, because it's going to come up when your anniversary comes along, any year anniversary, but especially the 25th and the 50th or the 20th anniversary is important. And I, I know there are rules about that that I'm supposed to know, silver anniversary, golden anniversary, and, yeah, and all of those <laughs> other things yeah, where men, yeah. uh, ladies, you put in the comments, tell us what to get. But, um, but I know that if you let your anniversary go by, and you just turn to your your spouse and say thanks, honey, and uh, you know happy twenty fifth. Then th- you're in trouble. <laughs> you do things for your tw- for your anniversary. And again, I just had my twenty fifth, and so y- y- I did what men do. I went out and bought a twenty fifth anniversary wedding band and. Uh, you know, a band of diamonds and, and bought the best thing that I could, the best thing that I could afford that wasn't gaudy or that I thought my wife would would wear, and she's not big on jewelry, so it had to be subtle uh, but elegant. And so I spent uh, many, many days uh, looking for the right band for her uh, that would commemorate our our anniversary. And so when God wins victories in your life, I think there's, you know, you don't go out by yourself a diamond ring, but, but, <laughs> but there should be something that you commemorate for God. And I would say you, you might want to do this. Go to your church as a pastor. I would always welcome you to do this. Go to your church and say, I want to celebrate this victory in my life. God has really blessed me. How can I help the church uh, to, to commemorate this? Is there a family in need? Is there somebody hurting? Is there somebody who needs this or needs that or something specific in their life I'd like to give? Or can I give you this financial gift specifically for the International Mission Board so that they go to the missionaries and uh, help lead somebody to Christ? Or I would like to, to offer this gift to buy 50 Bibles. And uh, can we give out those Bibles as a church? And, and so there are ways that you can commemorate God's goodness in your life as well sometimes even visually. And so the other thing is, if you just get the gift for your wife or your husband for your anniversary, and you you just give them the gift and turn around and walk off, well, that's not going to go very far. It's a combination thing. What what do you do? You shower them with with I love you honeys and compliments, and, and you say good things. It's your anniversary. And, uh, you know, you go out to eat. You find ways to celebrate those things that are most important and dear to you. If what God has done in your life is important, you can find a way to celebrate. This Sunday, we're going to have a fellowship, a Sunday evening fellowship. It's potluck because I want everybody to be able to participate if they want to by doing something to celebrate God's goodness in the last 25 years in the life of this church. And he's been so good to us. And so uh, that's, by the way, that's a direct biblical 
correlation, and not that they did potluck. They, of course, they did potluck. There were there, were, there was no <laughs> catering service, so it was all there was the term potluck didn't exist. But they celebrated. They had a big party, and I guarantee after this battle, they're not dead. They're excited. That's always you know exciting when you when you get to wake up the next day. You get to go home to your family because their families are at home praying. Their wives, their children. Because in that day and time, you know, your, your husband, your, your father, your brother, your son goes off to battle, you may very well never see him again. And that was often the case. But they got to go home and celebrate with their families. And so certainly their families were probably home praying for them. And that dinner that night, that meal would have been very special in celebration. And so for God's people to get together, certainly... We should celebrate God's goodness and what He has done. Amen. Amen. All right, Jacob. All right. So, um, how is it that we can uh, deal with the weight of sin? Uh, point one is uh, let the Spirit empower you. Hmm. Point two, let the church support you. By the way, we didn't talk about point one, and I'll just say this in a single sentence. You don't have to buckle under the weight of your own sin. Now, outside the church, you do. Good luck with that. You know, that's that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. But in Christ, you don't have to buckle under the weight of your sin. That's why he died. So that you can be released from that yoke. Christ said that. And 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 God God wants you to have victory over that sin. And so um, uh, again, we didn't talk about point one. Really, but the Spirit, if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, is within you, is here. The presence of God is here through the Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. We don't often talk about the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, but the Holy Spirit will empower you to do things you, you normally couldn't do, to, to, to stand up to things you normally couldn't stand up to. Don't ever underestimate this, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you're a believer, God has empowered you. And Chris gave all oh, just tons of really great verses about that. God gave us a spirit of, not of fear, but a, a spirit of power and love and self-control, 2 Timothy 1.7, and on and on he went. You need to go watch the sermon for those passages uh, because there is time and time and time and time again, the New Testament tells us we have been empowered through the Holy Spirit. Don't pretend that you're a victim because you have the power of a victor because of the Holy Spirit. Yep, absolutely. Um, so that was point one. Let the Spirit empower you. Let the church support you. And then let God's victory be, be known, known in your celebrate. life. And absolutely. celebrate that. Yep. All right. All right. With that, that concludes our our study today of digging deeper into the sermon. Join us next week as we look at God's victory in our life.